With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. I imagine the first time someone fails in a big way at something that's important to them, they're lost. They don't know mm-hmm. what to do yeah. to come back because they haven't developed that skill. It's, it's not like a talent one's born with. And maybe there's a little bit of nurture and nature in there, mm-hmm. but how do you build that skill to come back? I, th- I think it's just keep trying things that are going to challenge you. Failure will naturally happen. <laughs> I don't think you have to right, plan you can't it. avoid it. Yeah, I don't plan, you know, I mean, it always sneaks up on you. You know, I think that disappointment and failure happens all the time. We don't have, that's one thing we don't have to try to find. Right. So I think the idea is to try to challenge yourself. Uh, you know, and for me, wanting to be an astronaut put me in positions where I did things I would never do if, if it wasn't because I wanted to fly in space. People have many interests. Uh, you know, you mentioned astronaut education. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll throw out baseball again. Yeah. But uh, it seems like you kind of look at your interests and you say, okay, interests are one thing. But interest plus meaning equals the thing I'm going to pursue. I think, James, it's really hard sometimes to be honest with yourself about what you love. I think we, you know, that if it's something that is really important to us, um, you need to be honest with yourself that that is what you really like and that's what you really love. And maybe that's not what you're good at or maybe you're not suited to do it or you don't think you are. But who knows? Maybe you are. So I've got Mike Massimino on the podcast. Did I say it right? Nah, you screwed that up, man. <laughs> I, I don't I even want to try Tyson. your last I listened, name. I listened to him over and over on Star uh-huh. Talk saying your name. I thought it, it, that's how he said it. Really? Yeah. How do you uh, say it? Massimino. Massimino. Mike yeah. Massimino. Right. Uh, a two-time shuttle astronaut. Uh, I'll get into your accomplishments in, in a second, but you also recently wrote the book Spaceman, right. an, uh, an astronaut's unlikely journey to unlock the secrets of the universe. Mm-hmm. Great book. I read it. I highly recommend it. Thank you. I uh, also watched you, you You were on uh, Star Talk a, t- a couple times with Neil deGrasse Tyson. You've been uh, a guest star on The Big Bang Theory. That was fun. And you even say in the book, that's almost like for you as big an accomplishment as going into space. Well, I don't know, I don't know if it's, it was almost as much fun. I don't know, accomplishment-wise, uh, probably <laughs> going into space was maybe a little more meaningful, but The Big Bang Theory was right up there. And it was a lot of fun. I think what... The point I was trying to make in the book, I think people know me more for that. Right, you know, they like watch <laughs> they watch that show. So a lot of people have seen me. I've been on that show six times, and uh, I guess that's enough so that people uh, who watch the show have, have seen me there Do and they love the, the show. Uh, once in a, not so much on the, you know, in New York City, people don't usually stop you on the street unless yeah. there's something wrong. Yeah. You know, the policeman, someone has a badge, maybe stuff. But uh, but I, I, sometimes people come up to me and say, hey, "I really love you on a Big Bang Theory," and they want to know something about the show or the actors or something like that. So so before I get into more the the book and kind of your path 
to being the, the, an astronaut, as, as you say, your unlikely journey. Mm -hmm. um, there's something that just happened uh -oh. that I wonder if uh, totally annoys you. So, so you came in here, and um, you know, as many guests do, first you want to. Um, Find out where the the bathroom is. Right, is it, very important. And you, and you said, "Is it is it a mile away?" And, and <laughs> I made this, I made this stupid joke. If you could go into space and fix the <laughs> Hubble telescope, you could find your way to the bathroom. Hmm. Does everyone make that joke to you? Like, are you I sick get, of that joke? No, I'm not sick of it. I think that it's it's an interesting point. But I think what what it brings out is people don't. Not that it was it was easy fixing Hubble. It was hard, but you get a lot of help. You know, you get and and it, it, we're used to. I'm, I'm probably going in a, maybe a direction you're not you weren't thinking, but um, you know I, I think about this a lot in my new life now at Columbia and you know writing the book and doing things with NASA as an astronaut. Um, you kind of knew what you would you were supposed to do all the time, and there was a checklist for it. You know, I was joking. I was I was talking to a friend earlier this morning and saying how you know I needed to go get get some stuff at the grocery store and how that's complicated. And they go, well, how did you you know how did you do? It? I go well. You know, it'd be you know for me like doing that sometimes is is, is you know it could be how am I going to do it? How am I going to get there? What am I going to do? You know, it sounds simple, but you got to think about it. Even though what we did on Hubble was fairly complicated, we we practiced and we knew how to do it, and it was a team to help you. We had procedures. If we were if we had an engine fire in a jet, like we we knew what to do, and so a lot of it is knowing what to do. And so we're trained so well, and there's so much support. And you have a certain way of doing things by the book, by the checklist, and your days are kind of planned around that, that there's some sort of simplicity to it that we don't have in normal life. And just like walking around, you know, just going, just doing regular things, you know, in life sometimes can be, I find can be really tough. Like, well, man, I wish I had a checklist on how to get to the airport in time, you know, stuff well, like that. Well, it's interesting. There's a, there's a lot that you just said in there that's worth unpacking because I've... So what you say is, I am sure is true. Like once you're out there, there's so many checklists for for things that can go wrong. And in yeah. fact, in your in your walk to fix the uh, spectrography tool of the of the Hubble telescope, spectrograph, spectrograph. <laughs> I say everything. The spectroscopy. It's good. You're, I'm gonna, good. you're good. I'm gonna keep on saying. These are some big words, man. <laughs> I know. I gotta improve my vocabulary. That's yeah, good. You got uh, it. Uh, but but things did go wrong that weren't on your checklist, and we'll talk about right. that in a second. But it's interesting because on any endeavor which is high risk and obviously going into space and being and and sort of the the loneliness of it there's there's high risk uh but it, it seems like the preparation for many endeavors like that is to mitigate the risk as much as possible and that's what you did in the years that's why it takes two two or three years sometimes to plan these missions right yeah I mean, you're you. What, they have the largest swimming pool in the world that, yes. you, that you practice in, and there's a space shuttle in it, Correct. and the Hubble in it, right, and a space station in it as well. It's a How full scale mockup. It's a uh, hundred feet wide. It's two hundred feet long, and it's forty feet deep. It's the largest pool in the world. Is it? Is it the largest pool because of the depth? Just per volume, I you know I, I think it's uh I I yes interesting question. There may be. Pools of those dimensions, maybe even more, in just the you know the the um, you know the perimeter of the pool. But as far as the volume goes, yeah, forty feet's a pretty pretty deep pool. And I guess size. Are, are, this is the most water of any pool. And, and so you're wearing your spacesuit in there and and simulating spacewalks. Yeah, um, pools and everything. Th this is really off to the the side of uh, of where I want to get to. But uh -huh. how close are those experiences there to the actual spacewalk?
for the for the turning of the wrenches and the working together uh, as a team, both with your your spacewalking buddy because you always go out in twos and with the crew that's inside your astronaut friends who are inside helping you out supporting you from there and then and then the bigger team down on the ground co- coordinating all that teamwork and learning how to use your tools and where to, where you're going to translate meaning where you're going to move to how you're going to do everything and figuring it all out it 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 prepares you extremely well but a uh, big surprise when you when you get to space and you know it's not really a surprise you know it's going to come but when you see it though it's so uh overwhelming at least for me was the view of the planet around you the view of where you are is uh, in where you are working in that environment working in the vacuum uh is such a different experience uh, that it's 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 a bit overwhelming for me um visually and just you know moving around but as far as doing your job you're you're 100 ready to go well i i want to get to something you just <clears throat> said there which is you mentioned quite a lot the word team and mm-hmm. friends that you're working together with and i want to kind of relate that in many ways to what it means to be the right stuff to be an astronaut because you refer to that a lot in in mm-hmm. in the book but um but on your last point about looking at the planet or looking at the at the earth you say on your on your very first spacewalk when you got back into the shuttle the first thing you said was uh the earth is a planet mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> which of course sounds obvious but if you think about it when we're sitting here right now and looking yeah. out you you kind of have to either theorize or or scientifically prove that it's a planet where you actually saw the curvature of the planet and that it's yeah. just this round ball in space we don't really see that from our viewpoint here yeah and and our interaction with our planet with our world is it's it's three dimensional, but you're kind of dealing on the you're, you know you're working on the surface. You're kind of on top of it. You're you're getting in a in a in a car or or a train to go to work, or you're playing with your kids, or inside your apartment in your house, or wherever you might be, or you go on vacation or whatever. That that's how go to the grocery store, go to go to the office, ball game. You know these are how we interact with the Earth and. Um, I kind of feel like it was a safe home before I went to space. And then I got to space, and I had a different relationship with the planet because I'm looking down on it, sort of, or up at it, depending on your point of view. And and you're, I felt away from it, and I could see it. And then I could turn my head, and I could see the rest of the universe out there. And um, I realized that it's not this safe haven that we think it is. We are, we are, all, the, we are all space voyagers, and... It's the Earth that is keeping us alive, our atmosphere and the, our ecology, keeping us protected and, and safe from the hazards that are out there that we worry about when we're out there. And the Earth and our atmosphere uh, protects us from that. We don't have to, have to think about it. How do, how do you translate that feeling when you came back here? Like, Did it change your perspective on, on life itself, family, friends? I think, I think what it, I, 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 I really think that we're living in a paradise. I think this might be as good as it gets. Mm. I, 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 it's a wonderful place. It is so beautiful. I, I can't imagine any place being more beautiful. I mean, I didn't intend to ask this, but do you think that there's, you think the odds are there's life on other planets, or are things so particularly perfectly set up here that those odds couldn't be replicated? I, I can't imagine that there isn't life somewhere else. Uh, if you look at what Hubble has shown us. 
um, of all the possibilities. And one more recent Hubble discovery in the last couple months was that there there are 10 10 times as many galaxies as we previously thought. We already knew there were a lot of them, you know, billions. And now we're only, the the calculations were now we're only seeing about 10% of them. So, what so, the heck? I, so there's so many possibilities. There's billions of galaxies with billions of stars in those galaxies. And each one of those stars, like our sun, probably has planets around it. Most of them have planets orbiting. To think that we're the only ones, that the only place where there's life, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't see that. I don't think we've ever been visited. I don't think we've, we haven't found anybody yet, and no one's found us yet. Uh, but we need to keep plugging along and getting smarter until someday we... We can make contact, which I think we eventually will do. Well, uh, you know, one thing worth mentioning is that so the the Hubble telescope uh, is the main vehicle by which, because it's outside of all the distractions of the at- of the Earth's atmosphere, mm-hmm. it can take the most clear uh, and intense pictures of, yeah. like you say, tens of billions of galaxies that are, you know, billions and billions of light years away. Mm-hmm. And the only reason we can do that. Is because of the person sitting right across from me right now. You, well, uh, you fixed it <laughs> with you a lot of other, with a lot of help. Yeah. I know you're going to say the yeah. team, team, team. Yeah. But you went out there twice on two Hubble uh, missions, mm-hmm. and uh, you know you fixed. You were involved in kind of the discussions and the operations mm-hmm. of fixing the telescope. So yes, you and your team right. fixed it so we can all see these amazing, we've all seen the pictures now. Like Everybody, even if you don't think you have, you have. Right. James, they're out there. They're, you know, Pearl Jam had an album cover, um, dating myself maybe, but in a while, <laughs> many years ago, one of their album covers had the cat-eyed nebula on it. We see them everywhere. Almost every really beautiful uh, uh, photo image of the universe, many of them anyway, um, not all of them, but but many of them are Hubble images, and we see them on magazine covers and advertisements, on on rock album covers, uh, everywhere. They permeated our society, our culture. I mean, the one I remember the most uh, that I've seen recently. Maybe I even saw it in your in the photos in your book. I don't know. Uh, it's the one with where every galaxy is almost like a dot. So you see yeah. how many galaxies there truly yeah. are out there. Yeah, and it's amazing that this one camera can essentially take that photo. Yeah, and I don't know if this is the one you're talking about, but there there was there's one famous Hubble shot that's that's called the Hubble Deep Field. Yes. And um there was a, a part of the sky that they thought was just black. They thought there was nothing there, right? It was a dark part of the sky. No telescope ever pointed at this part of the sky ever saw anything. And so the idea came up, well let's point Hubble there. And Hubble was pointed there and there was many galaxies there and we just they were just too far away for us to see in this one section of the sky and it's called the Hubble deep field and you see all these galaxies that showed up in this this small section of the sky if it was kind of like looking through a straw from earth like that that size very small piece of the section of the sky and there's nothing out there for a very long ways but once you once you see what is out there in that part of the sky you see all these galaxies uh, appear and that's what Hubble was able to see and it's because as you said it's above the atmosphere. It's not the light is not distorted. It's kind of like if you're looking, if you're in a swimming pool, looking up through the water, looking at the sun, it looks pretty blurry. And if you get out of the water and you look directly in the sun, it looks much clearer. That's kind of the effect that the atmosphere has on on our eyes and on telescopes that are on the Earth. Once we get above that, 
you see the cl- stars more clearly. We're not much closer to them with our human eye to see them, so you don't see it. All of a sudden, you know, it's a lot bigger, you see, but you see them more clearly. There's no twinkling of the star. And when you put a telescope up there that has the power to, to magnify, it can see very, very far away and very, very clearly. So so I want to rewind a little bit and get back to the unlikely journey part. <clears throat> mm-hmm. uh, so you start off, uh, you're you're a little kid, afraid of heights. Yeah, and still you, am. I don't like heights. I don't want to look out that window right now. We're <laughs> like the ninth floor. Right, ninth floor. Yeah, a little scary. Uh, scary. Right uh, uh, and seven years old, 1969, Neil Armstrong. Two things happen. Neil Armstrong walks on the moon. The New York Mets win the World yeah, Series. Big. Yep. <laughs> and so, and 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 you kind of make the point that seven years old, or, or I'll generalize it a little more, like around that age, when you're a young age, this is where dreams are kind of like, kind of implanted inside of you, lifelong dreams. And so you had this dream of being an astronaut. Right. Uh, did you did you think at that point that it was a possibility? Like you had bad vision. Uh, I did, yeah. Uh, I, I No, I did not think it was a possibility. It was, it was something that I really was interested in. It was something I wanted to do, but I, I think reality sort of set in, or at least my, my perception of reality as an eight or nine-year-old. I was six when Neil Armstrong walked on the moon, and um, you know, by the time I was eight or nine, I think I realized that the space program was very interesting, and the astronauts were the coolest people around, but I also kind of started getting the sense that uh, that ain't me. You know, I, I would Why? never be able... I just saw them as superheroes, and... You know, growing up where I grew up, it was it was okay to dream when you're a little kid, but as you got older, I felt like, nah, that can't happen to me. You know, it's impossible. I I couldn't become a test pilot. I I couldn't be as cool as Neil Armstrong and these other guys. It's just they're really cool and they're superheroes, and I'm just a little kid. Well, well, well <laughs> and it just it just was you know it's kind of like being I want to grow up to be as I say in a book is like I want to grow up to be Spider Man. How the heck do you do that? That's that's what I saw the likelihood of becoming an astronaut. It's impossible. It's something other people do. Um, not anybody I knew, not anyone from my neighborhood was ever going to grow up to be an astronaut. That's the way I felt about it. So impossible. Did you think? Uh, so let's look at the other dream. Did you think you could be uh, uh, play for the New York Mets? No, that was now that I enjoyed baseball, but but that requires a special talent that I that became pretty obvious I didn't have and. Uh, um, you know, I liked, I love baseball. I still do. It's still my, still my passion. My other pa- space and baseball, and uh, it's, it's still my. Those are my two, pa- my two biggest passions. Um, you know, not everyone. But but I just you know I, I, that I realized I was going to be a fan. You know, not, I wasn't. I wasn't going to be a player. It's funny because not everyone listening to this thinks to themselves, well. Uh, I had a dream at the age of seven and I achieved it. Like some people, maybe. Maybe they kind of—I don't want to say they gave up because that's a strong word—but um, somehow they you lose touch with what yes. you really desire deep Correct. down at the age of seven. And I uh, feel I like agree. you stuck with it against all odds on many occasions. Like for instance, you uh, you go to Columbia, you get a degree, you go to MIT, you get a master's degree, and then you're going for your PhD, and you failed the first time you tried to qualify for the PhD. Now here's the difference between. One one of many differences between you and me, for instance, I failed also my first time trying you to did? get a PhD. Yes, and I left graduate school. You did? I did. Uh. You went back and kept going, and then you got it. Like you, you again. Your professor even told you to drop out, and you got it. He was trying to be merciful. Right. Yeah. 
but you felt like, okay, if I'm going to be, one of the things you thought, I guess, is I, if I'm going to ever be an astronaut, I need to kind of keep going at this. Yeah, well, I, you know, I knew uh, there were other ways. I mean, a lot. Of, there's a couple things there. I think. Um, well, you, uh, you, there's something you mentioned about um, earlier a minute ago. I'm sorry, I don't want to reflect on that. I, That's I thought okay. it was really good. What was it that you said? You were telling, you were asking me about uh, um, the, the dream. It's the dream. Yeah, I'm not okay. Oh, yeah. This is what I want to. Uh, there was two points that I wanted to comment on. That's all right. And, and the first yeah. one is, I think James, it's really hard sometimes to be honest with yourself about what you love. And um, you know, we, I think a lot of times we, 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 I, I anyway, sometimes will have a tendency to say, no, nah, that really is not that important to me. If I think it's hard to do, I'll say, well, you know, I don't, that's not that important or that's not, I really don't want to do that or whatever. And sometimes you're actually telling yourself it's not worth it to me to put that time in to get it. But other times I think we, you know, that if it's something that is really important to us, um, you need to be honest with yourself that that is what you really like and that's what you really love. And maybe that's not what you're good at or maybe you're not suited to do it or you don't think you are, but who knows, maybe you are. So I, I think what it came to me was is that I kind of realized that, well, me becoming an astronaut was impossible. And even as I got older and I was pursuing it, I knew that it was going to be very challenging. If I ever got the position to do that, it was going to be challenging for me because I am afraid of heights and I didn't like the water and I wasn't a thrill seeker, and this was kind of the ultimate thrill seeking profession that I would have to to do. But I also knew that it's something I really wanted to do, um, and that was the honest truth of it. And so I was going to have to figure out a way to withstand these 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 uncomfortable things or these challenges or whatever whatever was going to be in the way. It didn't matter. I was going to have to try because when I really was honest with myself, that's exactly what I wanted. To do. How do you think people develop the discernment, though, to decide this? I have these dreams. This one's not worth it. This one's not worth it. This one's not worth it. But this one is worth it. Um, I, I think you know. It, I, I sometimes can tell for me just what like my my motivation is. Like you mentioned the Big Bang Theory, right? And uh, um, I really enjoyed doing it, but I kind of stepped in that one, right? I mean, I, I was I was contact. They contacted NASA. They wanted to talk to an astronaut about sending one of their guys into space. Uh, the guy at NASA headquarters knew me as being kind of like one of the funnier astronauts, I guess, and he thought I would fit in with these with the writers, and and I did, and I enjoyed it. And they asked me to do a cameo, and so I got to do six 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 Big Bang Theory shows, right? And That's I was a lot. Through a give, you it like was fantastic. The, are you like in the Screen Actors but Guild now? I am. I had to join the Screen Actors Guild. I didn't when I was with NASA. I did I did most of the shows when I was at NASA, and I and I couldn't. It's another story, but when you're with the government, you can't accept any any extra uh, money. It's part of my. I could not do it, so I I, I did not have to join. But after I left NASA and I was on the show, I, I joined the Screen Actors Guild, for example. So I was speaking to a, a, a friend of mine who's an agent, right, in Hollywood. And I was like, well, you know, maybe I could do more acting. And he goes, well, if you want to do that, you need to probably, you know, either you're in New York or L.A. and you, we can help you get auditions. I go, auditions? I got to go on audition. He goes, yeah. And I'm like, ah, forget it. <laughs> so to me, it was like, I don't want to pay that price. I enjoyed the shows that I did with the Big Bang Theory. And maybe I'd like to do some more acting and some more shows that came up. And I don't know if I want to go. If, I, if I'm ready to, to eat the dirt that you need to eat in order to become a successful actor, right? Right. But I think I'm gonna, I, may, I may try a little bit, but, but that's not something I wasn't sure. With the astronaut job, I was willing to do almost anything that I would have to do. I mean, within reason. I wasn't going to do anything illegal. I wasn't going to do anything that would compromise the way I felt about the way things should be done. I wasn't going to you know, do anything like that, but I certainly was not going to give up. And I think that, for me, I can still find things like that that I want 
that I want to do. Well, I think, and I think it'll they, just it'll just click with me. If I get you know if I you know if the if the Big Bang Theory wants me to go on the show again, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna do whatever I can to do that. If if another opportunity comes up, and you kind of think I think you feel internally to me is like is is a level of it. Yeah, I'll, I'll do whatever it whatever is required to do that. And other things, I'm like, well, I'm not that as interested in that. I, I think the things that that stood out for you, uh, at least from what I I see in the book and and in your life. Are the things where you ascribed additional meaning? So the being an astronaut was not just about you. You always kind of had this thread running through your mind that it's about increasing the knowledge of the human race and and in achieving that further frontier for right. the human race. And just like teaching, yes. um, right now you're a professor at Columbia. Yes. Teaching is maybe the young people you're teaching can also uh, contribute to that our understanding of of life and society and so on. I agree. Yeah, it's, and you're right. I mean, that's another thing that um, I think I discovered. I think I kind of knew it, but I think I discovered it writing the book. It's interesting writing a book. What you learn about yourself, right? And and uh, you know, when I was speaking, and I had a co-writer, uh, Tanner Colby, helped me formulate the book and and get it down. And you know, we worked together along with our editor, um, Kevin Downton, over at, at Crown Publishing. We worked worked together. Um, and one, you know, we, we, as we were writing. You know, I was like, what you know, what is the book about? And one of it is is there's three things in there we, we decided. And one was um and two of them are kind of obvious, following from me anyway, following your dreams and never giving up. And another one was how cool it is to fly in space. But the third one that emerged was uh, uh and the importance of doing something meaningful in public service. And I was like, What? I've never done anything meaningful or useful to the public. But then I realized, no, I certainly have, but it was more than that, it's a sense of of that being important. My father was an inspector for the New York City Fire Department, and I was around him and his colleagues and firefighters. Firemen are my heroes. Right? I'm a New York City firefighters. I'm an honorary New York City firefighter. They gave me a shirt with my name on it a couple of years ago. So that, I'm counting that. That's a big that. honor. It's a huge honor. Those, those are, I think, the true heroes of the New York City Fire Department. And, um, but and it's again, that sense a job of doing, with, with higher meaning. With higher meaning. And I think that even as you mentioned, as we're joking around here with the Big Bang Theory, the reason why I like doing that show is because it shows science and scientists and engineers as a community working together and f- having fun. And I think it's done a lot for science STEM education and for showing people who might be a little bit different maybe, you know, in, in our normal school system or any school system when you, as you're growing up. And, but they have interesting, fun lives. And, and I, I like the way it depicts the space program and science. I mean, there's other messages there too that make it funny. But, but, but it's, it's like, a worthwhile program. If you I look think. at though why you didn't, uh, you know, weren't willing to put in that extra, you know, eating dirt, as you say, yeah. to, to do the auditions, maybe because acting or even just appearing on the Big Bang Theory didn't give you enough extra meaning. No, that to that say, it did. The big it. the Big Bang Theory did. And if it was the right way to participate, you know, you mentioned some of the other shows I've been on. You know, those are the right ones. I don't know if I'd want to go out and do a soap opera. Not that I know an offense oh. to that, but I, I wouldn't. I don't know if I would find for me the purpose in it. But a space related program, I, I like it. An education related program, I like it. You know, something, um, something that had you know sent a message was inspirational. Um, that that's something I find to be interesting. You know, for. I think for me, it if because for me things are generally hard, right? And I knew that if if, I, if no matter what I'm going to do, it's I'm going to have I'm going to have a tough time doing it to, uh, well. And so I I, I, I need to make sure. That. I don't but know I, if it's true. Well, I, 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 no, it is. I think to do something well is not it's not easy. And so I think you have to find something you really love. 
so that when you're putting the time and you're doing, you feel like you're, you're, you're spending it well. You know, and I, I guess I felt like, for example, we talked about grad school. You know, I knew grad school was going to be difficult and getting my PhD was going to be difficult. So I really wanted to do something that I was interested in and, and something that I felt was going to be worth um, the time and the effort I was going to have to put in. And, and that's what I feel. You know, any job, I think, takes you away from your family. Every job has sacrifices in it. So I wanted a job that I knew that those sacrifices were worth it. And for me, that was working in the space program. Um, I, so I wanted that 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 meaning, and I think I think you're you're right. It's that it's having it's not just it's not doing something, but doing something that has meaning to me. It's like a job versus a, um, uh, what do we you know when you when you when you have a, a something you're 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 very meaningful to you in your in your work. I'm, I'm searching for the word and can't think of it. Um, well, so it's sort of like, but, but you know, so, something that's something that's important to you. It's not just your job. It's it's very meaningful to you. And and like I, I like people have many interests. Like so, you were, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you mentioned astronaut education. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll throw out baseball again. Yeah. Um, and or you could have been, um, you could have worked at IBM. Like you could have mm -hmm. done something with your mechanical engineering yes. degree or whatever. Mm -hmm. But uh, it seems like you kind of look at your interests and you say, okay, interests are one thing. But if if I can also interest plus meaning equals the thing I'm going to pursue, and that's yeah. what you basically did. And so even when you got your your PhD, and again this was just you still are you know miles and miles away uh, metaphorically mm -hmm. from being an astronaut. Just because you have a PhD doesn't mean right. you're going to be an astronaut. Yeah. But um, you did it specifically on the topic of how to control a robotic arm from a great distance, like yes. a robotic arm on Mars. Right. That obviously puts you <laughs> in the radar of people who are building spaceships. Hopefully, yes. That was, but it was something that I that I was interested in doing, and um, it was hard to know. Uh, the other the other point that I wanted to get back that you mentioned earlier was like it's 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 hard to, it's hard to know what to do to get to where you want to go, and so for example. You know, failing my qualifying exam, when I would, you know, there, when something like that happens, it w I thought about it. Well, maybe this isn't my path, and maybe it's not even my path to being an astronaut. I don't know. May maybe it's better for me to, you know, leave with my master's degree and and go work at the Johnson Space Center or somewhere else and and get experience because plenty of people have done that too. You know, a lot of my friends, one of my colleagues, are not are not PhDs, um, particularly the military personnel. Are, you know, it's rare to have a PhD and be a military test pilot. There are some. But most don't, and and there are some astronauts who don't have a medical degree or a PhD or a doctor's degree. Um, so I thought maybe that's that's my path. Maybe I'm supposed to get out of this place. And but so then it's so then it was more a question of well, I don't you don't know what the what the direct you don't know exactly what the path is for you. And I think for me, what it was is I felt I felt when I really thought about it, I felt in my heart and my soul that that it was important for me to try to get through that PhD program. It was a, you know, a few more months of trying again. And if I failed the second time, I would have been prevented from continuing, more or less thrown out, <laughs> all right, for lack of a better word. And then I couldn't continue. But I thought it was worth that investment of another six months or so to give it another try. And I really felt like at that point that that would be a great way to write that story. You know, that if I failed the first, not, not that I was thinking of writing a book at the time, but just the story of my life of, you know, I gave it a, I gave it a really good effort and I failed and I failed miserably but it would be really great to come back and pass that what? second time. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb 
has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over a hundred or two hundred different Airbnbs over a three year period, and I loved it. I love. I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I of course the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income? by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests. And having my own Airbnb or or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love you know turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like, I'd rather do anything then go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But 
Now you don't have to waste your time if you use Hims. Hims, H I M S, Hims is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely gonna use him for now. Not on. that you need it. You're you're young and healthy, James. I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at Hims. Dot com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hims.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hims.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. I think because you always feel you're not as good as your cohort, Mm -hmm. you know, all the people around you, that you kind of have to... um, do all of these extra things. You ha- you felt like you had to get the PhD as opposed mm-hmm. to going this maybe perhaps more difficult mm-hmm. path with less qualifications. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing is uh, uh, when you're at that low point, like you just uh, failed the, the qualifying for, for mm-hmm. the PhD, how do you kind of just the next day wake up and say, okay, I'm going to put that behind me and and move forward? Yeah, it's not so easy to do that. And, and it's let me, really hard let me to say, do that. The, the other thing too is that I... When I was there, you know, you said I felt like I maybe I had to work harder or wasn't as up to speed with some of the other students or people around me. But I had an opportunity to study at MIT, which is just, and as an undergrad, I was at Columbia. And I am so happy that I had a chance to be in these places. And so, you know, the opportunity to continue and get a PhD from MIT, whether or not I became an astronaut, I just felt was an extraordinary opportunity. That I would regret if I didn't give it my full shot. So that was one thing. Whatever I was going to do in life after, I wasn't sure. But I thought that was great. As far as failing and waking up that next day, that's pretty bad. I, you know, I still. It's not. It's not fun. It's. It, it was. It was disappointing. You know, I felt. I felt very bad about it. Um, I have a, a friend of mine who I mentioned in the book. His name is C.J. Sturkow, a Marine pilot. He used to say that uh, you give yourself 30 seconds of regret and then move on. He used to say it's like in a simulation. If, if you make a mistake, uh, you know, give yourself 30 seconds of regret and then you have to move on. Well, it was probably more than 30 seconds of regret. It was more like a few days of regret of feeling poorly about it and what was I going to do and so on. But I think eventually you have to get back up and, and, and try again. And um, I think that those, that's a really important lesson. What I, what, I've, what I've found is with people whether it's people that I've met who are successful in business or people, and I've been lucky to meet a lot of really cool people, right? Or musicians, rock, rock stars who are really successful or uh, people in Hollywood where, you know, actors or, or writers or producers or whatever it might be, or athletes or scientists or anyone who is at the top of their game, who are very, what we can see to be the most successful people in the world, politicians, whoever you want to list 
there. Um, they're not people who never failed. They're people who never let failure stop them. And you can be sensitive to it. I'm fairly sensitive to when I fail. I feel bad about it. Some people maybe don't have any regret. I don't know when it doesn't go. But I think most people have a, have a little bit of regret with when something goes wrong. But you can't let that stop you from pursuing your dream and and moving on. Uh, is that something you can um, almost practice? Like how you like because I imagine the first time someone fails in a big way at something that's important to them. They're lost. They don't know mm -hmm. what to do yeah. to come back because they haven't developed that skill. It's it's not like a talent one's born with. And maybe there's a little bit of nurture and nature in there. Mm -hmm. But how do you build that skill to come back? I, th I think it's just keep trying things that are going to challenge you. It'll naturally failure will naturally happen. <laughs> I don't think you have to right, plan you can't it. avoid it. Yeah, I don't plan. You know, I mean, it always sneaks up on you. You know, I think that disappointment and failure happens all the time. We don't have, to, that's one thing we don't have to try to find. Right. You know, I think it's going to find you uh, easy enough if but, you're trying. But, if you're not, if you're not trying. So I think the idea is to try to challenge yourself and put yourself in positions, uh, you know, and for me, wanting to be an astronaut put me in positions where I did things I would never do if, if it wasn't because I wanted to fly in space. And, 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 and so it put me in these uncomfortable situations that I, that I was able to overcome because I had this motivation uh, to to want to do that, but and, and this sense of meaning to it, yes, and sense of meaning because I, I knew this was important, so I was willing to take it, and I think that that that's maybe what 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 maybe people might want to consider is that there are gonna you're gonna take your lumps if you're gonna try to be successful in anything, I think eventually you're gonna you're gonna have setbacks. You're gonna, I, you know, I wrote in a book that I was told by uh, my advisor Tom Sheridan, my advisor at MIT, said to me one one day. Now, it's interesting. Some people say things to you, and I don't even know if they really think that they're trying to influence your life. But some of these, some of these things sometimes stick. And uh, what he he just was, we were just talking about something. He says something. Well, you know, if you can, if you, you can learn to deal with indignities in life, you can go far. He wasn't talking about me. He was talking about in general. What's learning indignity? indignity was you know making you know feeling, uh, getting knocked down and and feeling like you know you're you're just just failing at something or not doing well or being told you're not good enough. If you can learn how to deal with that and, and use, you know, to put that away and and not let it stop you, if you can learn how to deal with that crap, you can you can go far. And I think and, that and that's, so that's true. And so that's the key is figuring out how to learning learning how to deal with it. I think it that. is. A lot of it. You know, for me it happened naturally because I always found I felt like I was in these places where I was in a bit over my head. You know, I felt like I'm a little bit over my head here, you know, and it, whether it was even in, you know, in high school, you know, trying to take some of the harder classes, it wasn't easy. You know, you just don't learn this stuff because you're bright. You need you need to you need to study, and so challenging myself to take harder classes um, in high school even was was one thing. Um, going to a college where you know it was it was tough for me to get in, and I got in. And I remember thinking about Columbia. You know, you think, well, it's no brainer. You got in, you should go. It's just school of choice. But I was like, I'm going to have to work hard in this place. You know, if I go here, I'm going to be challenged. There are some smart people there, and the same thing at MIT. You know, like, ooh, you know, now this, you know, this is like another step up here in in graduate school there. Um, but you know, but, now now it seems like in you, retrospect, though, like you did get the PhD at MIT. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you, you did go into outer space. Yes, and you're a professor at Columbia. Right. So in retrospect, it probably wasn't as hard as you thought. It, no, it, it was hard. I would never do it again. <laughs> <laughs> it was hard. Well, let's get then to the, the yeah. next level. No, it was hard. No, this was not. This was not easy stuff. There's no way to sugarcoat it. Well, let, it let's was get into something tough, even more difficult. Uh, it was though. tough, James. It was really tough. There, there's something even more difficult that you mm -hmm. did though, on the very next stage of your yeah. process of becoming an astronaut, which is you, I don't know anyone else on the planet who has ever done this, 
but a you 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 failed at your medical exam because yes. your eyes were bad yeah. and somehow you corrected your vision. Right. <laughs> like you can't correct your you're not allowed no. to uh, back then you correct your vision. Now you can. Now well, now, now, you can now they surgery. accept LASIK. Yeah, back this is uh James again remember this was a long time ago now, right? This is uh, I, was a, I was a young man. <laughs> no, this was back, you know, I was 90s. in my early 30s. I was 31 years old when this happened. Um, I, you know, it was, uh, you know, over 20 years ago. But but after failing the medical exam on something that seems impossible to fix, right. why did you even have the gall to think you could fix your eyes? This is this is interesting. Uh, it's an interesting point. And um, it only it came out when, we were, when, I, when I wrote the book. I wrote it and... Um, Showed it to the, you know we, we you know we wrote up the draft and showed it to my editor and, and he was like holy cow he, and the first thing he said was I cannot believe that you never gave up but even when you failed your eye exam you just f- figured out a way to see better and I was like yeah and then and then I thought about that and and it's like wow yeah you know that is not that was a little unusual and that resonates with people it's interesting because I never I didn't really talk about that after I got by the eye exam. I didn't. I didn't tell that story very much to people, unless I ran into someone who was having trouble with a medical issue, trying to become an astronaut, and then I would share that story with them. But, but, but it's been an interesting topic for you know never giving up. And what happened is, as you said, is that I, for, I applied for an astronaut. I applied for astronaut four times. I was accepted on my fourth try. My first two tries, I just got a letter back from NASA after you know saying no. My third time, I got called in for an interview, and part of the interview process was a medical exam. And in the medical exam, they discovered I, I could not pass the acuity exam. And it was it was a long it's a bit of a long story that I did try to try to describe succinctly in the book. But um, I had tried to change my vision with something called orthokeratology, which was sort of acceptable. It wasn't surgery. But it really wasn't a very practical fix. And what it was, it, it would flatten your eyeball with a contact lens to change its optics so it would it would allow you to see better for a certain period of time. But then the eye would respond and go back to its initial shape. So you're trying to shape, try to try to, to to change the shape of the eyeball with these hard contact lenses. It wasn't it wasn't really a, a good a smart thing to do. But I tried that. It didn't work, and my unaided acuity was beyond their limits. And um, I couldn't, there was no procedure that was acceptable. I wasn't alone in this. I mean, at, that was the number one reason for people to be disqualified. Mm. There were, there was, I mean, there was one test pilot who was interviewing with me who failed the eye exam. And it was because his acuity, once they dilated your eyes as well, you had to be able to see well dilated. And apparently his acuity changed. I mean, he was a fighter pilot, right? A test pilot who had perfect vision on every one of his eye exams, but the way they dilated his eyes at NASA, he wasn't able to read the eye chart exactly the way what they needed, and he failed. So people were failing this thing, and they were, you know, they were, everyone was upset about it, and I was upset about it too that I failed, but I didn't want to give up. And But, uh, but, but I want to get to yeah. that. I, I'm sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. No, no, go, yeah. Please, yeah, no. But, no, but, you get, keep me online. But, but you know, that, that giving, that didn't want to give up, I mean... There are two ways to deal with the stress that probably you've experienced mm-hmm. and, and stress and disappointment when you failed the to be an astronaut because of mm-hmm. something as silly as an eye exam. Not silly, but yeah. something as, as insignificant. One way is to say, is to relieve the stress by saying, yes. okay, it's not my fault. Right. It was just this eye exam. Right. And then you move on with your life. Right. But the, the, that, that's an easy way that 99.9% of people would yeah. relieve stress. You took the 0.01% yeah. of saying... 
well, there's another way. I'm going to still be an astronaut, and I'm going to relieve the stress by doing something positive and trying to fix my eyes. That's a really good point, James. You said, I wish I had said that. <laughs> that was <laughs> no, perfect. No, that's great. No, but, no, but it's perfect. I mean, you're right, because that went through my mind, too, is you could say, well, I tried and I was medically disqualified. What are you going to do? End of discussion. I could not live a life like that. I, I realized for me, people said, how did you not give up? And I said, how could I have given up? I would not have been able to continue with anywhere near a happy life if I would have done that. I really would not have. I, I, I figured that... I had to keep trying. I could live with them telling me no. I could live with them telling me I was medically disqualified, but I could not live with me giving up, even if even if they kept telling me no, and even if they told me I was medically disqualified. I could not accept it. I would not accept it. And um, I just looked at it as another, another obstacle to overcome. Interestingly enough, at this point, and I write about this in a book, I had made friends with with astronauts at this point. I was working at the Johnson Space Center. They were all your neighbors. And a lot of my neighbors, you know, kids the same age. I got to know them, you know, at, at church or around the neighborhood or at work or whatever. And uh, different places you run into them, and, and I got to know. I was working with them, and and what I found was is that a lot of them who were successfully accepted in, uh, into the astronaut program also had issues, whatever you know, with medical issues, maybe not the eyesight, but other things, and that I wasn't alone. And it's just another obstacle. And then and then all of a sudden it became different. It's like, okay, it's just another obstacle. I just have to figure out a way to do it. The way to do it was near impossible. I had to train my eyes to see better naturally you know, without having any procedure, which was not easy to do. But there was methods. There was a book on it that I found uh, that, that, that talked about it, that wrote about it. I found a doctor who had trained little kids. They do a lot of work with little kids to help them with their vision when they, you know, they're little. Um, and and you know, they're, still, they're still growing. Doesn't usually work very well with adults, but she was willing to try. Doctor Hopping was was willing to give it a try to help me, and and it worked. I was able to get a better a, a, a better acuity reading on the eye chart. So 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 you so finally then you you get accepted as an astronaut, which must have given you this huge like oh I did it I'm um I I've got the astronaut suit I've got the yeah, label I've right. um um all the patches yeah um, I've got the, the cool com- sunglasses I've got the comma Big watch. astronaut yeah, after my yeah, name yeah. now. But of course, there's the next thing, which is you have to get into space. Yeah, <laughs> which is you know there are many astronauts who yeah. don't ultimately get into space. You had to work hard for that. Yeah, uh, you well, did get into into space. Mm-hmm. You did the yeah the first uh, you 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 went on the Columbia, and then um, and then there's more disappointments to come. Obviously, after the next Columbia mm-hmm. uh, exploded, which mm-hmm. you, you know was was. Obviously, must have been incredibly depressing and, and sad, and your mm-hmm. friends were on the worst day of my life. Yeah, yep. I'm sure that must have been horrible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and then it looked like maybe they would close the space shuttle program down yep. or delay it, but still the Hubble needed to be mm-hmm. further fixed. Uh, and then you're 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 in line for the next mission finally to 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 get uh, back to the Hubble, and you're not going to be. They tell you. You weren't that great as a spacewalker, <laughs> and so you might not be on the mission. Mm-hmm. And you also say that's the lowest day. You, that you was had a, bad. You, you, I yeah. think four times in the book, if you search, you say is the lowest day of your life. Really? <laughs> yeah, something like that. The lowest day or some analogy of that. Probably and, right. And um, you know, it co- goes to show that no matter how many achievements, like you, you had achieved your your initial goal mm-hmm. of going into space, but still, there's always the next. Yeah, you know, up to a certain point, I guess. Right. There's always there's always something else to 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 do. There's and there's always I th- I think there's always 
the there's always disappointment. There's always that if you're trying to do something, that's there's always going to be setbacks no matter what. They're going to keep coming um, throughout well, but, life. But but you know. But that's okay. You, that's you, what like you know. It's you just got to keep going. So so I agree. There's always the setbacks. But a when do you when do you say? Listen, I got into space. <laughs> I I have that for the rest of my life. Yep. I'm just gonna. I'm not going to space anymore. I'm just gonna stay home. Well, that's what <laughs> happened to me. I came, you know, I, after I was after the shuttle program. When the shuttle program was winding down, um, I I called it that I had had enough. I felt satisfied after that, and I think that that's a that's a you know, it's a very difficult decision to make. Um, I think every you know every astronaut at some level has wanted to do this job more than anything. It's I think it's very, I don't know of any astronauts who are like ah. I just figured I'd become an astronaut for the heck of it. You know, I was either this or do something else. I mean, it's usually something that is very, very special and very much appreciated. And then it has its, it runs its course. It has its, it has its phase in life for you. And, and then it's time to do something else. And, uh, so that was, I don't know if that's where you're going with this, well, but, well, but well, that's, that's what happened to me. I, I did. I, I felt I felt satisfied at a point that I'd had enough, and it was time to try something else. You know, when you when you were um, you mentioned when you were you were a rookie astronaut, mm-hmm. and you felt um, and you used the phrase imposter syndrome, mm-hmm. like you felt like you didn't necessarily deserve to be out there with all these like mm-hmm. expert spacewalkers and and pilots and commanders and so on. And do you think it's when the imposter syndrome finally wears off that you say, "Okay, I did. I'm not an imposter. I did it, and now I'm going to go to the next mm. thing where I'm, I might be an imposter." No, no, no. Do you feel an imposter as a <laughs> professor at Columbia? Uh, sh- don't tell them. I'm working there now. <laughs> they'll get it. They'll get nervous. Uh, no, no, not as much, I guess. Um, like, what is imposter syndrome? Like, how do you get over I it? I think. I think it's. Uh, I, I I think you get over it with age, maybe you know. And now I look back, I don't I don't necessarily feel that way any longer. Um, I th- I think it's I think it's more um, for me. I think it was more when I was younger, um, and when um, uh, when particularly I think at at you know at MIT and even when I was applying to be an astronaut, I just looked around. And I was like, I know these people are all great. I think I always have that feeling. I think even at Columbia, I look at some of my colleagues up there and like, wow, these guys are really smart and these men and women are terrific. But I think maybe by this point, I've, I've gotten my, myself used to being kind of part of a team. And, you know, I think it's hard. You know, I think it, it's maybe I've become more comfortable with with uh, with who I am maybe. I don't know. This is interesting. Do you charge a... For this therapy session here, <laughs> yeah, well, because you're making me think. Actually, it's really interesting. Your question is because you're making me think of, in ways of things that I haven't really thought before in any other interview, which is interesting. But I think that um, I think part of it is that um, you you kind of get uh, you kind of get accustomed to what you're you know what you can do and what you can't do. And I realized that there were certain things that I wasn't good at, but there were also things that I was good at. And and I think the concept of being on a team, I think, is to me is um, is the way I make sense of it. And so, for example, on my on my space mi- shuttle missions, you know, there were there were things that other people could do a lot better than I could, and if I tried to do what they were doing, I couldn't do it at that level. But there were other things that I could do pretty 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 well that m- maybe I didn't maybe I personally didn't think that they were as valuable because I was good at it. But that doesn't mean that they weren't weren't valuable things to do. Well, well, I well, think now at Columbia, you know, I realized that I you know I, I'm not going to be able to go teach quantum physics like some of these really smart professors who are, but I can teach other things that you know and through my experiences as an astronaut that 
that no one else can teach, you know. And, and so I think it's getting used to who you are and feeling, feeling, you know, feeling for me, you know, being part of a team. Not that I have to know everything; I have to do everything, but I can contribute as part of a part of a team. Well, well, this leads to the kind of the the, the final two directions that I that I want to go because uh, they're there. And one is you, you mentioned the three themes that you and your editor and and co writer thought about the book, and it seems like there's actually a, a fourth theme, which mm-hmm. I'll get to in a second. But first. There's this element of, and you mentioned it was your favorite movie growing up, the the right stuff, you mm-hmm. know, based on the book by Tom Wolfe, the right stuff. And I always get this impression, at least visually, that the right stuff means these kind of like tough and hearty right. men with like western drawls and bad athletic, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But but you really kind of changed the meaning in in the book. Um, mm-hmm. And and you have this great line. You say um, there are no jerks in space. There are no, no very few. <laughs> maybe that's true. So maybe it's changed slightly. But but it does seem like a big part of what you've done is leverage your ability to work with a, a team, which is an ability, and that's mm-hmm. what's really kind of propelled you from each level to the next. Is you know you mentioned in your in your lab at MIT specifically, four three of those people in that lab became astronauts. Right. And so you re- if you were just like hey, Hanging out in a bar, it's not yeah. like three of the people at the bar are going to become astronauts. <laughs> so it's right. really, it's really this saying, you know, you're the average of the people you surround yourself with, and you surrounded yourself uh, and forced yourself to be on a team with the best people you could you, right. you could be around who would also fit your your dream that you wanted to accomplish. It's it, that, and that's a good point. And I remember one one of my friends I talk about in the book, uh, Kevin Kriegel. Um, you know, this is this was not in the book, but I remember talking to him about it. He, and um, I knew him before I became an astronaut. He's, we we met in Houston, but he's from Long Island, where I grew up, and uh, uh, we we became you know, like instant friends when we met. And 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 when, after I got accepted as an, you know, he would he had been there. Um, he had been in the astronaut office years before I was, and was a Air Force officer before a test pilot and so on. But one of the things he said to me was that you know most of us are just you know when you get here, most of us are kind of at the same level. You know, certain things we can do, certain things we can't. He says, there are some people that are way up there. You know, there are some people that are still, you know, and he, and he gave the example of another guy I talk about in a book, Charlie Precourt. Says, you know, Charlie Precourt is a little bit different maybe. You know, he can speak the many, many languages and he's a great pilot. He's really, he's kind of like a cut above maybe. But the rest of us are pretty much all at the same level. We're kind of a part of this big bubble. And I think that that's that's kind of it. But when you're with a, high, a bunch of high achieving people, that's pretty good. To be average of the of those types of people is 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 I think is okay. But that's that's sort of the way it is. It's kind of we're all we're all all have something we can do. We all can contribute. But it's the sum of us together, which is which really makes it powerful. And and and, and the sum is something you have to actively work out at to be in that to be involved in that equation. You know, the yes. sum is an equation. So right. so. Uh, uh, so that's what I wonder. Like, so let's say I'm listening to this, and I'm driving to work, and I'm wondering, okay, well, how does this apply to me? How does somebody in their daily lives become the right stuff? Not necessarily an astronaut, I, but like, just move a little further in that direction of what the right stuff I, is. I think, I think you know, the 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 for me, the right the right stuff was um, there's a certain, and, and we, you know, people ask me, what is it about? How do you become an? What was different when you got picked, and what are you looking for for astronauts? How do I become an astronaut, essentially? And you can look at the requirements. The you know the there's medical requirements that we've you know that have changed since I was there. Um, but uh, but there's also you know the, the education, experience, and so on. But there's a certain quality, and that's what I think this right stuff is. 
And that quality is that, how do you feel about this person? Is this someone that you you would trust with your life? Is this someone you would trust with your family's life? Does this person have this character where if you need their help, they're going to give it to you, and if, if they need help, they're going to come to you for it? And it's, it's, a, it's sort of being, what I would say is being a really good person, a, a good man or a good woman, someone that you can really trust. And that's the way I feel about my crewmates. I mean, I feel like I can share anything with them. So as and opposed like to like their have physical prowess or mental prowess. Yeah, that prowess. doesn't matter. I mean, you, that, that all comes with it. You know, mm-hmm. you've got to be physically fit to do the job and, and people have different areas of fitness, you know, there's different levels. Uh, people have to be smart enough, bright enough to do the job. You need to have the right credentials. You need to have those things. But there's that that certain element of you, you when you see when you when you meet when you're interviewing people, for example, to be an astronaut, or when you're you know you you be there's 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 a certain element you're looking for. Is, is this person gonna have my back? Is this a person I would want on, on my teammate? Is this someone that I I want to share my 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 life with more or less? Is this one I'm gonna trust? Someone I can trust with my life. And, and you know, it, it seems it, like... And that, that, I think, to me, that is the right stuff. Being it, able to, to work together to achieve this type of goal that we do in spaceflight. And, and it's interesting because you, you, you put yourself in many situations where you could demonstrate that you had the right stuff even before you were taking the astronaut exams. You became neighbors with the astronauts. You were, because you got the PhD on the robotic arms, you were working with them on robotic arm projects. Mm-hmm. Like You put yourself in lots of situations where you could consistently demonstrate, hey, we're on the same team together and working towards the same goals, even yes. if I'm not an astronaut yet. It's true. I mean, that was, I don't know if that was really planned, but it worked, you know, it worked that way that what I was interested in working on human operator control of robot systems was something he did in the space program that I thought was really interesting. And as a result, when I started working in that, particularly when I went and worked in the space program after graduate school, before becoming an astronaut, it naturally led to me working with, with astronauts. And I found that I really liked them. And I, and I was down here in Houston and met a lot of them, and I really liked them. These were the best people. I, which just made things worse if I wouldn't have gotten selected. Because I would be around them. I remember going there to some training sessions. Yeah, no, I just would be like, oh, man, this is so great. But I, the more I found out about them, the more I liked. They were just the best people I've ever met. And, and I'm not saying that they were the fastest runners or the smartest people. I'm talking about the quality of human being. I found with the, with that group of people uh, was was the best people I've ever met as an organization, and I'm and I'm biased of course, but but I think even objectively speaking, I realized I felt as an organization. I thought about this when I first started meeting them, and I saw the way they worked together. I felt as an organization of people, this is the best organization of people in the world. It's not just the astronauts; it's also the trainers, the instructors, the flight controllers. Let's call it that space team down at the Johnson Space Center, for example, or at the Goddard Space Flight Center. But let's let's make it small. Let's just deal with the astronaut office, okay? I'll put up that group of people against any group that we admire, whether it's a sports team, I don't know, Congress, you know, if we admire them, or you know, whatever you want to think of a of a great organization, a collection of very interesting people, whatever it might be, I would hold that the quality of the people that I got to work with, that group of people, I think is the best group of people in the world. I don't think you can find a better group of just human beings in the world. They were just good people, very team-oriented, helpful, down-to-the-core good people. And it, for me, it was so much of a privilege to be part of them. You know, John Young, John Glenn, we lost him just a, a couple weeks ago here in, uh, by the time this thing airs, right? 
but recently we lost John Glenn, and I think he epitomized in our in our imaginations of what we would think the the ultimate American hero would be. At least he did for me, and I think for a lot of people. And that I think were the kind of qualities that it wasn't just him; it was there were other people like that that I got to work with. He might have embodied them more than anyone else, and been the most. Um, visible of of any of the astronauts ever because who he was and what he did and what he accomplished but but those those types of you know that that that, that type of character that he had I, I think embodied what we have and what we still have in the astronaut office you know and and it, it sort of also brings me then to what i think is the the fourth theme of your book kind of the undercurrent of a lot of your mm-hmm. career success is not just that, oh, I fixed my eyes and I had that ability and I, I passed the test. Then I got better at uh, spacewalking and so I went on the second uh, shuttle mission and, and on and on and on. I think, you know, it, it became clear to me when you, A, when you started to, you did the first tweet from outer mm-hmm. space, you started building the social media following, then NASA, realizing the audience you were getting, started putting you out on mm-hmm. speaking events and, and the Big Bang Theory asked you on. Mm-hmm. Made me think, you know, obviously, you know, maybe maybe I'm wrong, but you're not an actor, right? No. But you did go on the Big Bang Theory. Right. And you thought you weren't the best spacewalker, but you walked in space twice. Mm-hmm. Four times, than, actually. Four times, <laughs> yeah. which is more than yeah. like eight billion other people. Yeah, yeah. And, and you, fi- you fixed, you're on the team, you yeah. fixed the Hubble Space Telescope. You thought you weren't the smartest guy at MIT, but you got a PhD. Mm-hmm. You just said you, you're not the smartest person teaching at Columbia, but mm-hmm. you're, te- you're a professor at Columbia. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what happens is, is that you get pretty good at a lot of things, mm-hmm. and they all are kind of working together. Like if you're a pretty good astronaut who's pretty good at tweeting, mm-hmm. suddenly you're the only guy that NASA <laughs> is going to send on the speaking tour. Yeah. So so and it's kind of these various combinations of yeah. things. That really makes you kind of the best at that combination in the world. You know, that's what that's made good you the guy. It. I like it. That, yeah. that made you the <laughs> one guy out of eight billion to fix this, the telescope. Yeah, no, it's it, it, that's interesting. You get to the list now. I guess author. You know, writing right. a book. You know, it's not it's not the greatest book ever, but it's good and it's done well. It made a New York Times bestseller list, and Look, that's, that's pretty awesome, right? So we got that <laughs> going right. on too. So two point two million books were published last year. Yeah, and. I don't know, fifty or sixty. Maybe uh, you know, there, so we're very, very happy to be there. So, um, uh, yeah, I think I think it's just yeah, the, maybe these combination of things, and and, um, and I think that imposter syndrome is what forces you to uh, tell me if I'm wrong. It forces you to try to get better at combinations of things. Well, maybe I won't be the best spacewalker, but I'm going to realize my place on the team and how to work together. Kind of. So then the combination of the two makes you the guy to be the one to, you know, screw in the the last screw. You know, you, you might you might have something there. You know, it it might be the com- the combination of things. Um but I think that um uh I, I think you know, a couple things you said were were interesting. One is is that um you know, even though it's relatively speaking, right? So, uh, and I remember having a, we were having a conversation one time in the office about how many flights people were going to get. And someone says, well, you know, maybe you get three or you only get two. And then someone said, yeah, but that's pretty good when you consider everyone else in the world. <laughs> you right. know what I mean? Like, oh, okay, but it's hard, but it's I'm going to get two space flights else. or one or two. Or who's going to get space flights? Like, 
Yeah, but that's because we're just in this room amongst us, right? So maybe you have more space flights than I do, and you have more time doing this than I do, and I have more than you over this. But let's look outside of the building right now into all the millions of people that are out there, you know, just in this in the city of Houston. We're doing pretty good compared to the rest of them space-wise. And so I think that's part of it. It's it's relative. When, you, when you're dealing with these groups that are specialized like that, you might not, you know, within that group, you're going to, you might not be the best one, but compared to the rest of the world, um, you're doing pretty well. And and I think you're you're right. I think you know I talk about it in the book that I you know I, I you might not I might not have been the best person on the, for the job to fix Hubble because of my ability to spacewalk or to figure things out or whatever. But what was more important, I thought, for those missions, and I realized that after my final spacewalk. And I write about it is that I was the right person because I was the person that wasn't going to give up. And we talked about that earlier. I'm not letting any obstacle get in your way. And there were there were problems we had throughout that mission, particularly I write about this final spacewalk that I have, where it seemed like all was lost. And I was going to go. I felt not that they would write it this way, but the astronomy books could point to me and say we wouldn't know if there's life on other planets. But Mike broke the telescope. Um, and that's the way I felt about it, but I, I didn't give up, and neither did the team around me, and we were able to. Right, it was to very work much a teamwork out. thing, and it says that even though you were going back and forth with all the tools, and um, it was people. Either, I forget if it was either uh, down on the ground or in mm-hmm. the ship who were kind of coming up with the idea of pulling the whole handrail mm-hmm. off, uh, and then there was also kind of the confidence boost that Drew gave you with the right, thumbs my buddy. up. Right. So, so everyone, everyone pulled together, and and in those things, I think are more important. You know, there might have been. You know, I, I think you know there are uh, there are MIT professors who applied to be astronauts who had me in their classroom and probably when I got selected were horrified because <laughs> they're like, "Holy cow, how did I?" So, it's, but it's not always the you know, the qualities for I think success is not always being the smartest or the best even at something, but certainly uh, I think it's in in our game as astronauts, it's it's the ability to work with other people and and maybe more importantly. Not to give up, and and I think people discount that, but it's, but it's really important not to give up. And if you get disappointed, it doesn't mean you can't do the job. It just means that maybe you need a little extra work, or maybe you were unlucky, or maybe it wasn't your day. And you shouldn't give up the shouldn't give it all up. You should keep trying. And I, I, I when I thought about this, when even when I was in graduate school, I remember watching the television, and um, there was a, a space shuttle flight was up. And I was working hard in grad school, trying to get through MIT, wanting to be an astronaut. Was already ejected once at this point, and I remember seeing that and, and those those astronauts on television floating around doing this interview. And I thought to myself, "That's that's what I want to do. That's that's what I want to do." And then the thought that followed it was, "But you're never going to get a chance to do that. You'll never do that," because I knew it was, I thought, close to impossible. But it really wasn't impossible. It was just improbable. And the probability might have been really low. Like you said, 0.01. It probably was more like 0.000, lots of zeros and a one at the end. But there's that one out there. And sometimes I think about that, that when you're trying to do something that's near impossible, it really isn't impossible. There's always a chance that it might happen, right? We, we find out about that in a lot of different areas, that we think this can't happen and that can't happen, and it does. Because there's, there's always a possibility. And the only way the possibility turns to really, truly be zero where there's no one at the end that's a zero, is if you give up. If you don't give up, you still have a chance. And and there's, in in order to not give up, you have to kind of, A, get better at the obstacle, right. B, build other skill sets 
to right. kind of work with the initial skill set that you might not be the best at. Right. Uh, and then just persistence, building the team, being yeah. around the good people. Um, Figure so, out what works for you, and and keep trying, and just just don't just don't surrender. So so you know now that the obviously the American Space Program has almost kind of inverted in on itself since since you were you were there. Uh, do you think the rise of uh, well private companies, but let's just use SpaceX as an example. Do you think this will kind of uh, create a new era in uh, uh, space exploration and and many more opportunities for manned spacecraft to go out there? I really think so. I think our space program is going to be kind of, um, I wouldn't say two directions, but two themes and hopefully in the same direction. And uh, one is that uh, we still have the NASA program going on. People, you know, kids can still grow up to be NASA astronauts and uh, you know, working for governments, in other words. So you have the Russian space program with their cosmonauts and countries of Europe and China has astronauts and Japan and Canada and all these different countries. I guess Russia and China now have two still manned space programs, right? Uh, yeah, well, well, we work with the Russian. We don't work, unfortunately, not working uh, with... China's kind of on its own doing its thing, but we certainly work very closely with the Russians on the International Space Station. Uh, the United States, Russia, the countries of Europe and the European Space Agency... Uh, Japan and Canada all participate, work together very closely on the International Space Station program. So I think that is something that's going to be, the International Space Station is going to be going on for a while. Uh, we're building, NASA is building a, a, a big rocket called the Space Launch System to take astronauts below in low Earth orbit and a spacecraft to go on the top of that called Orion. Um, they're also working with SpaceX and with Boeing uh, to build a crew vehicle. It's called the Commercial Crew Program where astronauts We'll be flying on these vehicles that are a little bit of a different model of the traditional NASA paying a government contractor to build something. These companies are also have, have more skin in the game. They want to use it for commercial purposes, um, but they're going to they're working with NASA to send astronauts to the International Space Station. That program's done very well, hmm. but that's kind of like our traditional sort of let's plump that as sort of your traditional astronaut going into space in the John Glenn Neil Armstrong kind of genesis, right? I think the newer thing is now what we maybe can say is, you know, if you had like military uh, flying an aircraft and then we have commercial aircraft, you know, maybe the we can look at the same way in the future, hopefully in the near future, where we're going to have these private companies flying, paying citizens or scientists that's that want to go I'm to space. That's how I'm going into space. That's why I'm going back. <laughs> so that's my, that's my, I'm, I'm going to try to get a job as a, as a flight attendant if I can. <laughs> I don't have to necessarily pay this big money. But I would like. I do think I will. I, I want to uh, go back to space again. I'll take go those together. blue chips if, uh, if you're the if you're the flight attendant. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hey, what would you like? I will serve you your your, your drinks and refreshments. You got it. Yeah, I don't know if you want to do that. We'll have to talk about it. Waitlist says that might not be the best thing when you first get there. That's a good but point. But we'll, we'll figure something out for you. But uh, um, but I think I think no, definitely it's it's these companies now trying to pave the way of 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 these entrepreneurs of flying private citizens and private spaceships in space. Like you mentioned SpaceX, Blue Origin, Jeff Bezos' company, yeah. and uh, another big player is uh, Virgin Galactic uh, with Richard Branson, and there are others. Have um, you ever thought about like consulting to any of those companies? Uh, they don't want my help. No, I have. I, you know, I'm very happy what I'm doing at, at Columbia. Um, if, if, if I get asked questions, I answer, but, uh, but they have a lot of my colleagues working at each one of those places, so they're pretty well covered. I, I, I'm happy with what I'm doing. I, I thought about maybe trying to join one of those companies, and I'm more, more uh, I'm happier, I think, than I would be doing that, you know, being at, uh, doing what I'm doing at Columbia. 
Um, but I think that's great what they're doing, and I hope to maybe maybe work with them more in the future, and that would be great if I could help. And and I would love to go on one of those one of those mm-hmm. spaceships someday. So I think we kind of have these two these two things going, and I think there are there are some there is some overlap there. But I think it's very exciting that we still have a a government program with the International Space Station, and and hopefully beyond uh, that is doing well. Um, maybe we'd like to be doing more, but it's doing pretty well. And I think the the new exciting thing are these private companies. I think it's these these two things going on that that uh, we need to keep an eye on uh, coming up, you know, now or in the immediate future and for a long time. Well, Mike Massimino, did I say Massimino for Massimino? Pete's sake. I can't. I'm so bad. At that. That's right. Just why do you call me Mass? Just call me Mass. Mass. I've been calling Mass. As I talk about it in the book since I was a little kid, and it's because of that name. So it's it's tough. I, I didn't. Well, I I was th- thinking of calling you that, but I figured yeah. that was your astronaut call sign. No, it's my name. I was a little kid. So, no, yeah, no, it's my everyone. Yeah, feel free to call me that. So Absolutely. so mass. Yep. Not only author of Spaceman, an astronaut's unlikely journey to unlock the secrets of the universe, but a frequent co-star on The Big Bang Theory. <laughs> and of course, you fixed the Hubble Space Telescope and flew into space a couple times, and Professor Columbia, and all sorts of other things. Thanks yeah. so much for coming on my podcast. The book was excellent. I really do think you say you always are self-deprecating. You say, uh, it's maybe I'm not much of an author, but it's a great <laughs> book to read. I highly encourage people reading it. And uh, uh, thanks so much for, for coming on. Well, thanks for having me. It's been a very interesting conversation yeah. this morning, and I, I appreciate you having me. Thank you. Thanks. Next time on The James Altucher Show. One of the greatest lessons Dad ever shared with me later in life, I asked him, I said, what's something you wish you would have known when you were my age? And he said, I, I wish someone would have told me it's not your responsibility to help everybody. Everybody. Help as many as you can, but it's not your responsibility to help everyone. Why do you think that's the most important thing? Um, both of us have really, really big hearts. And when we cross paths with someone who needs help, our nervous system fires on all cylinders to just as help them. It seems to me in the past few years, You've gone from focusing more on performance to focusing more on relationships. And you, I think you've kind of centered a lot of your coaching around the fact that it's our relationships in life that increase our performance. It does. Hey, thanks for listening. Listen, I have a big favor to ask you, and it will only take 30 seconds or less. And it would mean a huge amount to me. If you like this podcast... Please let me know. Please let the team I work with know. Please let my guests know. And you can do this easily by subscribing to the podcast. It's probably the biggest favor you could do for me right now, and it's really simple. Just go to iTunes, search for The James Altucher Show, and click subscribe. Again, it will only take you 30 seconds or less, and if you subscribe now, it will really help me out a lot. Thanks again. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.